All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with LucaTax, the crypto tax software I've trusted since 2014. LucaTax supports unlimited transaction uploads from major exchanges and wallets and offers live chat support if you get stuck. They help optimize your capital gains or losses reporting so you can max out this year's tax refund. LucaTax is offering a special discount for Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners. Just use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of just $19.95. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2-Bit Idiots. have another great guest today. Do you know who it is? It's Charles Hoskinson, the founder of Cardano. CEO of IOHK, a crypto development firm. We're going to talk about all things Cardano. Uh, as you could probably glean from the the onset in my intro, we'll have we'll have a little bit of fun uh, with crypto Twitter and and uh, some of the uh, branding around Cardano. You know, any misconceptions that there might be generally where the project uh, has evolved over the course of the last couple of years. Um, some of the recent milestones, including a, a recent hard fork that switched the protocol to proof of stake, uh, and so much more. But before we get into all that, Charles, thank you for joining us. I, I always like to start, even though it's a little bit cliche, to get a sense for how our guests came down the crypto rabbit hole and, and became, you know, basically in a very short amount of time, the leaders of this emerging ecosystem. So, what what an, what was your journey? before crypto and, and to crypto that ultimately led to Cardano following your uh, co-founding of, of Ethereum? Well, first, Ryan, thank you so much for having me on. I think this is uh, long overdue. We've been trying to do this for quite some time. Uh, now, your question is, uh, how did I get started? You know, and I, As with many of the people in this space, it was quite serpentine. Uh, so I started studying mathematics, and at the same time, I was kind of a political firebrand. I was part of the Ron Paul movement. So I read about Austrian economics and gold-backed money and these mm -hmm. types of things. So I always had this passion for monetary policy and this passion for fintech. And uh, right around 2011, I read the Bitcoin white paper uh, as actually part of the, the Slashdot uh, yeah, revolution where you know, a whole bunch of people heard about Bitcoin for the first time. And I said, oh, that's kind of novel and interesting, but it doesn't really look like it's going to work. It's one of those things where you need momentum. And if you have momentum, then it's self-sustaining. But uh, there was never an event to really kind of push it into that overdrive. Uh, so I, uh, I mined some, I bought some, I actually accumulated quite a bit of Bitcoin because it was so cheap, uh, but I didn't really care about it. I, I kind of let it go. 
uh, the sea change for me was 2013 when I, I realized that venture capital money had come in and uh, that it had gotten that momentum that was required for sustainability. And that was also the first time that Bitcoin hit a billion dollars by market cap. And so as a consequence, uh, Bitcoin really had grown to a point where I felt that it was worthy of uh, full-time attention. So I quit my job. I, uh, I went all in and, and, I, and I asked an old professor of mine for some advice of what should I do? And he, he said, well, those who cannot do teach. I said, that's, that's good. So I should teach. So I, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about Bitcoin and then I created a free course on Udemy and it's actually still up called mm -hmm. Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. And basically that course uh, was a, a Creative Commons license introduction to a lot of the concepts, uh, everything from public key crypto to how mining works, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I ended up getting about 80,000 students from that course. And I got over 5,000 emails over the life of the course. And I answered all of them. And it was a great way to just kind of meet everybody. I met uh, Adam Levine. I met Andreas Antonopoulos. I met Roger mm -hmm. Ver, Eric Voorhees. And back then, nobody was really that cool. And you know, it was very easy to talk to people. You just email them. Uh, you know, now, now everybody's kind of gotten uh, a bit bigger, so it's a little harder to schedule meetings. Uh, but on the back of that, uh, one of my students was actually a venture capitalist in China. Uh, his name was Li Xiaolao, and he ran a, something called BitFund. And he said, hey, I, I'd like to cut your jib. I just want to give you some money to start something. And I was like, I'm the worst person in the world to, uh, to give money to. I've never run a real business, uh, you know, a bad, bad, uh, I've never done project management or product management. I'm not really an entrepreneur. And he said, no, 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 you have what it takes. You know, here's a half million dollars, go figure something out. So I said, okay, I, I should probably go do something. So I asked my students, uh, where should I go? What should I do? And uh, I got a bimodal distribution of answers. Uh, one cluster said you should do a stable coin because volatility is bad. And another cluster said you should do a decentralized exchange because exchanges fail. And I said, those are both really good ideas. Is there, is there any way we can kind of combine both of those ideas together into one product? And so I, uh, I created a forum thread on Bitcoin Talk, and it was called Project Invictus. I think it's still floating around the, those forums. And the very first person to reply to that, uh, ironically, was Dan Larimer. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, so Dan's like, hey, I got this thing called BitShares that I've been thinking about. I'm right now working at a, you know, a company in Blacksburg. I tell you what, if we partner, uh, I'll quit my job, and you know, you be the CEO, I'd be the CTO. I said, all right, let's talk about it. So uh, Dan and I ended up actually working together for a while. We started a company called Invictus Innovations, and we didn't really get along too much. And I'd only been there for a few months, so I said, ah, screw it. I'll take a buyout and figure something else out. You know, I'm 0-1. So right around the same time, I was working with um, – Anthony Diorio, and I was doing some educational content for the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada. And, you know, it was so funny. We, we were having a call in October of 2013, and he mentioned, hey, a, a side thing, really small thing. Uh, there's this really smart kid that keeps coming to my meetup groups uh, who's got this weird white paper called Ethereum. And it's really raw. I, uh, I, I just read it and I can't make heads or tails of it. Can you let me know what you think? And I said, all right, Anthony, I'll, I'll do it. So I printed out the white paper. I put it on my, uh, my desk and I got around to it about a week later. I read the paper. I called up Anthony. I said, yeah, you know, it needs a lot of work, but things look pretty interesting. What do you want to do with it? He said, well, why don't you join these meetings that we're having? There's like four of us. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, let's just figure it out. So that was Amir Shatri, Mihai Alicia, Vitalik, and Anthony. So I, I went, did that. And then, of course, it snowballed into Ethereum. I was there for about six months and helped them get started and helped set up the ICO. 
and then uh, moved on when we had the big schism over whether we should be a for-profit like Ripple or a not-for-profit. And uh, mm-hmm. then I kind of went into the hinterlands for a bit. And I said, oh, well, I'm 0-2. You know, I'm really bad at this. I should just, I should just go back and, uh, into mathematics and, and you know, stop being an entrepreneur. But actually, so, but, but, but before, before we go, I mean, you're skipping over like a major part of the evolutionary story. Um, I think that there is a temptation because there were so many smart people involved that had wildly different uh, theories for how Ethereum should be built and, and ultimately uh, rolled out. Um, that if you asked a couple of years ago, maybe emotions would run too high to get you know sober answers or any type right. of historical perspective. But I'm curious, at least from your standpoint, without naming names, um, if you'd be able to break down, or you can name names if you want to, but I just, I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, right. But if you could just break down the different camps, at least, um, that were involved early on as part of the pre-sale and then as part of the initial rollout, because right. it's still, it's such an important creation event in the industry, right? The creation of Ethereum did create a, a Cambrian explosion of other smart contract platforms, um, all with the same, or generally I'd say the same end goal, but that, that took, you know, very, very different, um, made different design choices and took very different paths to, to actually get there. Um, can, can you break down the, the interpersonal and the strategic differences that, that led to some of right. The really good stuff in the launch, but you know, then also some it, of the defections. It, it's funny, Ryan. Uh, the most significant work of my career has been at IOHK. And we've written almost 60 academic papers, a million lines of code. We've launched a mm-hmm. product market that's a top 10 cryptocurrency. And I've been there for five years. Mm-hmm. I was at Ethereum for six months, but everybody just wants to talk about Ethereum. But uh, briefly, there well, are three- uh, hang on, hang on. Let me. Yeah, yeah let, I'll answer. I'll answer. Go ahead. Yep. So, there, so there are three books actually coming out this year on the founding and history of Ethereum. And uh, mm-hmm. all, all of them, actually, think, I think two of them have been optioned for movies. So it's a very well-told story. But succinctly, there were three things that led to where Ethereum was at. One, uh, it was an open source project that realized it was going to get a lot of money very quickly. And the problem there was that it didn't found with proper controls, governance, uh, legal agreements, and a common understanding of what everybody was going to do and everybody's relationship to each other. So mm-hmm. when I first joined, there was five people. I was the fifth person. Uh, within two months, we had over 100 people floating around the project. And everybody was kind of horizontal. So it wasn't clear who's in charge. It wasn't clear if who's a founder, you know, who's a volunteer, who's going to make a substantial contribution, who's not, et cetera, et cetera. Second. The, the proverbial uh, founding team of Ethereum. Yeah, it's huge, right? <laughs> Everybody's a founder. And, and so it, that was the first dimension that was a bit problematic. Second, there was enormous amounts of space between people uh, and also different cultures and languages between people. There was a core Ethereum team in Switzerland. There was a core Ethereum team in Toronto. And there was people all over the world, including a China core that uh, had formed. And so as a consequence, these teams didn't communicate uh, with each other or share the same values or philosophy with each other. Okay, so when you look at these things, you say, all right, well, at some point, you're going to have a bit of a schism. And the schism revolved around what is the best execution vehicle uh, to actually bring Ethereum to market. So my argument was, it's probably better to found a company like Consensus before you found the Ethereum Foundation. Because what you're doing is you're using smart money, and you're uh, basically building a product from 
start to completion uh, before you actually create a mass distribution event. And you have quite a bit of time to reflect upon stable, proper governance, meaning that when you form the Ethereum Foundation, uh, you've already done a lot of due diligence and thought about who's going to sit there and you've proven uh, who are good actors and bad actors and who has merit, who doesn't have merit. Everything was kind of like backwards. And, and my argument was that if we did everything backwards, first, most of the brains would leave because they didn't have financial incentives to stay. I was right. Mm -hmm. Seven of the eight founders are gone. Uh, second, that we probably would not have wise fiscal discipline on the ICO money. And I was also right there. Half of it was lost to market volatility, and they spent, I think, eight and a half million of the remaining money, uh, and they only had 500000 left in Treasury when they launched Ethereum. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, you know, a, a lawyer friend of mine who helped that designed Ethereum in Switzerland had the best statement ever. It went to a billion dollars. It's just like Bitcoin. Uh, so no one really cares, right? It, uh, it, yep. it became a tremendously successful project and it's built its own uh, adherence and it's its own culture and it led to the ICO revolution and now the DeFi revolution. So you can kind of Monday morning quarterback it and say, well, what if we had done things differently and went for profit instead of not for profit? Would we look more like Ripple? You know, would we have failed? Would we have succeeded? Who knows? You know, would have the regulatory side been different? Who knows? And, you know, I, I don't really care to speculate because it's, it's kind of pointless outside of the fact that there are a lot of lessons about governance that have been learned. Everything from the Dow incident to uh, perhaps it's better to have tighter controls on your founding set uh, that people are now incorporating into their personal projects. And also, I think it was a tremendously positive event for the ecosystem because there's mm -hmm. consensus in Parity Tech and all these other companies now floating around. And these companies are doing very good work. They're doing great scientific research, they're writing good software, and they're launching tons of different philosophies and ideas. And I have no idea who's gonna win, but I know someone's gonna win, and whoever of that group wins is going to, uh, is going to produce a lot of value for the world. So it's like all things, you get some good, you get some bad. It's like PayPal could have been the world's largest financial institution, it ended up being an asset of eBay and kind of a has-been, but it led to the rise of SpaceX and, uh, and Tesla and to a hundred other great companies because the founding set went on and did great things. And perhaps that's the route Ethereum will take. Perhaps it'll still be the market standard. We don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of crazy because I also view it, at least as an investor, uh, as one of those situations where if you knew too much, you would have missed out on the rally. So th there is a certain kernel of truth uh, when, when you say that folks had invested and made a ton of money in the Ethereum crowd sale were uh, inordinately lucky because I was full-time in the industry in 2014, well, 2013, 2014, 2015. Right. And you knew some of the actors and some of the infighting and some of the, the chaos that led up between the, the pre-sale to the initial mainnet launch. And, um, and you would look around and you'd say, how, how can you possibly invest in this thing, right? All the founders right. are leaving. There's all this, there's all this drama. Um, so uh, first of all, I don't think it's a story that's well known yet, but to your point, there are some, some books that are uh, in the works for this year. And, and I think, you know, they're going to be, you know, at least bestsellers within the crypto industry. We won't dwell on that. We'll let the, the storytellers tell that full story in its entirety with all the, the, the various characters. Um, but I, I do think that sets the stage for kind of what comes next, right? So you exit the Ethereum project, and this is where I interjected. Um, this is now late 2015, correct? No, no, 2014. I left in June of 2014. Late 2014. Okay. Yeah, okay, right before the uh, right before the crowd sale. 
Okay. So let, let's talk about the, the next phase for you. You, you. you mentioned, okay, I was 0 for 2. That's arguable. Maybe you were feeling that way at the time. Um, right. But, but you know, what, what comes next for you at the time feeling like you're 0 for 2? Well, yeah, I was 0 for 2 because I, I elected not to receive my ether and I never received any bit shares. So, uh, so, so, you know, I was entitled to 293,000 ether. I didn't take it. I, you know, had that, you know, I sold it at the market top. I think that would be $350 million. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, for two is pretty accurate in that respect. Uh, but on the other hand, you're right. I learned a lot and I gained a lot of experience and knowledge. Uh, so I said, you know, if I'm going to do this again and do a third company, then I want to build something that philosophically is hundred percent aligned with how I think. And I'm a very rigorous guy. I like basic science. I like peer reviewed research. I, I like, evidence-based software. Uh, so I said, all right, well, whatever I do, I want to create a factory that built stuff with that philosophy. So uh, a project came along where some guys wanted to do an Ethereum of Japan. And I said, okay, well, that sounds really interesting. If you guys let me basically have uh, control over the roadmap and how the software is built and, and the science that goes into it, I, uh, I'll do it. And I had this unused roadmap from when I was the CEO of Ethereum about how the software should be done and uh, how I, f I figured DeFi should be done and how smart contracts should be done. So mm -hmm. basically, I had the total freedom to pursue that. And so I structured it just like a DARPA project. And uh, basically, we went and hired a bunch of scientists. We got a bunch of university relationships in 2015 and 2016. And we did just two years of pure research. Uh, and it was the most fun two years I've ever had in my life. You know, we were looking at projects like Scorex, which was an experimental uh, framework for building blockchains. Uh, we wrote the first Ouroboros paper. We ex updated the GKL model for like a foundation of blockchain. And uh, nobody knew who the hell we were. No one talked about us. It was like I was dead from 2015 to 2017. Mm -hmm. Uh, meanwhile, we went from two people as a company, uh, myself and a co-founder, uh, to over 100 people. And we just started building stuff up. And then suddenly we launched Cardano in September of 2017. And everybody says, oh, Charles Hoskins is still alive. <laughs> There's actually something here. Uh, and unfortunately, we launched in a, in a boom cycle. So unrealistic expectations got hold of the ecosystem and we went to the moon. You know, which uh, was just a really miserable experience because, you know, I, I all that year had been saying that ICOs were ticking Tom bomb and that the market was being irrational. And uh, I knew that we'd probably be into some hard times. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so we just wrote it out and we just kept building. And the, over the last uh, two and a half years since we released the, the Byron release, we've kind of constructed uh, a technological marvel. You know, uh, Cardano is the first product built on formal methods in our space. So we wrote rigorous mathematical specifications. The company's written over 58 papers. We're almost at 60. Uh, these papers are peer-reviewed at major conferences like CCS and NDSS and, uh, you know, Crypto and Eurocrypt, which are really hard conferences to get into like 10% of the papers submitted are accepted amongst domain experts. So not cryptocurrency people, but cryptographers mm -hmm. from Harvard and Cornell and places like that. Uh, so it's uh, from one angle, it, it's been wildly successful because I got to do what I wanted to do. And we really pushed the science of the cryptocurrency space forward. From another angle, it's been brutal because all the software, the way we're writing it is kind of amenable to like a waterfall process and, you know, and it's not really meant for agile, fast moving industries. So to mm -hmm. figure out how to write software in that envelope and modify things that are written by academics to things that are written by Silicon Valley people has been just miserable. It's been the hardest work of my life. Uh, so mm -hmm. it, 
as with all things, you take the good and the bad, but it's just uh, fun to run my own company and it's fun to run my own roadmap. And uh, we have a great community now. It's over a million people floating around Cardano's ecosystem uh, across the globe. And uh, it's uh, always draws a crowd. So, uh, so, you know, as with all things, you start somewhere, you have some failures and then eventually get to a place where you get to do where, what you love and like. And uh, that's what IOHK is basically as a company. And now we've built a lot of abstract capabilities for software. So, it's very easy for us to build permission projects. It's very easy for us to build other cryptocurrencies. We do a lot of contracting throughout Africa. We have an office in Ethiopia. We do contracting in East Europe, like Georgia. I get to meet heads of state pretty regularly, uh, you know, and uh, I was just in Davos and had dinner with the prime minister of Georgia, you know, little things like that, you know, and it's just been a surreal, wild experience. And, you know, we even meet musicians. Like I met the, the, the former drummer of Guns N' Roses at a dinner. I was just like, what is going on here? This is, this is crazy. I, I never expected to live this, uh, this type of life. Uh, so, uh, so it's been a pretty wild ride since 2013, you know, seven years of just travel, peer work, 50, 52 countries uh, I've been to and uh, just so much work uh, that we've done. And, and where are you now? I mean, so there's, there's five phases, at least uh, last I checked. I'm not sure if there's, there's been updates to this, but five phases for the, the ultimate rollout of Cardano. The, right. the first um, IOHK has, has had uh, a pretty heavy hand and impact in, in making sure that um, the network launches and, and, and you get through the first couple of phases. But, but right now I believe you're in phase two with Shelly um, where you're, you're gradually right. working on a transition of proof of stake. And, and can you just talk about the um, where the network is now and how you view the speed at which you're upgrading the network and, and uh, fostering innovation in this network, given some of those limitations that you have, with the more rigorous academic mindset versus right. the faster and looser Silicon Valley mindset, which right. isn't, it, it, the, uh, the, I think there's, there's some intuitive trade-offs uh, that, that teams need to make, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, but, but at least you're acknowledging one of your trade-offs is speed for right. rigor. Well, and ideally, if you have better processes and original research, then you can move the trade-off profile a little bit. So you can have your cake and eat it too, meaning that you can mm -hmm. still use formal methods, but you still get a bit of agility. We even wrote a paper on it. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk about the eras of Cardano. So uh, when I thought about the project, I kind of broke it down into a collection of logical groupings. And so the first release we called Byron. And that was like, let's release something like Ripple, uh, where it runs in a federated mode, but it is decentralized, meaning that anybody can access it, download the wallet, and transact on it. But the consensus nodes are run by a collection of federated actors. And really, the point there was to introduce the project to the world and learn a lot of stuff about how to actually run a cryptocurrency, uh, help desk function exchange support, getting all the APIs right, third-party wallet integration, uh, building a community, you know, getting liquidity for the token, all of these things that you just kind of need to do to get a cryptocurrency where it is. And, you know, for Bitcoin, it took five years for that to actually mm -hmm. get to a reasonable point. So we call that the Byron release. And, and really that was just, hey, we're all going to learn and we're going to make a lot of mistakes and it's going to be painful. So just hold on. Uh, then after you've gotten your feet wet, you've got your wheels spinning, then we have to start turning on decentralization and hand the, the network governance, the network consensus over to basically the community. We call that the Shelley release. 
Mm-hmm. And we are imminently close to that. The first step in the Shelley release was getting the entire foundations built correctly. So we, we actually switched from just Haskell code to Haskell code based upon very rigorous formal specifications. Because once you decentralize the system, it's significantly harder to upgrade it. So you no longer have the luxury of making arbitrary changes and say, hey, let's do this or let's do that. Now you actually have to follow like some form of an improvement proposal process. So we felt it was really important that we get the soul of the product right, meaning that we have rigorous specs for it, then actually implement that. And we also needed to stabilize the consensus protocols because at Ouroboros, we've written like almost a dozen papers about it. And each paper kind of changes the protocol a little bit or adds new sexy features and functionality to make it more on par with the the security properties and utility of proof of work. So we had to wait a bit for the consensus protocol to stabilize and for the formal specs to be written. Then we had to think really carefully about delegation and the incentives behind it. We got to a point where we we're like, shit, we need to hire a game theory guy. So we went to Oxford, we hired Elias Kasupis, and it's a really great algorithmic game theorist. And we had to write some papers there too and kind of figure out what the incentives model should be. And that was really hard. So it took about two years uh, to get to a point where we finally had enough knowledge and we had done enough where we started saying, okay, let's actually start testing these things. And, and so we released a Rust incentivized test net last year and re- we used that to saturate up the stake pools. We have almost a thousand now uh, that are floating around and we built a very large community around it and we got a lot of business and technical requirements for the business of staking and for what people would actually do in practice. So we've been collating all those, consolidating all of those into the final release. And now we're actually on a two-week release cycle for our software. So we did achieve agility. We have very fast sprints. Uh, software is being written very rapidly. And we're extremely close to now upgrading the, the mainnet from Byron to the Shelley era, in which case we can roll over all those stake pools that are saturated on the ITN and hopefully have one of the most decentralized cryptocurrencies at launch. And with a beautiful staking experience, things like cold staking, we also completely redesigned the way that exchanges list uh, ADA. We abstracted out the wallet layer and the explorer and uh, to a project called Adrestia. And uh, we've been actually co-locating developers with exchanges and writing libraries and other things with them just so that it's easier to list data and to do staking as a service and so forth. So there's just a lot of good software engineering that uh, the last six months we've been able to put in. And by the way, we're still using formal methods. So property-based testing and so forth. When you say we, are you talking about IOHK, the Cardano Foundation, or the Cardano community? Uh, IOHK primarily for the software side. Uh, The foundation Mm -hmm. has been doing some very pivotal stuff. So we kind of have a tripartite structure. There's the foundation, Emergo, and IOHK. Mm -hmm. If it with all cryptocurrencies, you have something called the ODCC model. You have operations, delivery, commercialization, and capitalization. So the ICO or whatever lives on capitalization. Commercialization is like what consensus does. What we do is delivery. So we build the product. And then operations is the ongoing stuff, like community management, exchange listings, help desk, uh, these types of things. So when people are actually using the currency or the platform, they get uh, the help and support that they need. Uh, so the foundation primarily does with operations. Uh, Mergo deals with uh, commercialization, and then we deal with delivery. Uh, so uh, we are the ones actually right now doing the technical side of the exchanges, but uh, the foundation is actually the one that deals with the business and commercial relationship with exchanges. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if they want to give a giveaway or pay a listing fee or whatever it is, they take care of that, and we we just handle the technical uh, questions. But you know, it's tremendously complicated actually getting listed because you end up having a very fragmented ecosystem. There aren't good standards. Uh, that have emerged. So we end up having 
to deal with more than 30 exchange partners and all of them have different configurations and all of them have different philosophies and uh, communication standards and some are super professional and super secure and other ones were like we're dealing with outsourced people in China as they're uh, as they're listing people you just wonder like you you seriously trust uh, you know external actors with three four hundred million dollars in assets I don't, I don't think I'm going to put my money on this exchange uh, so it's uh, it's a wide spectrum and uh, you know we, we sit in the middle of all that trying to orchestrate uh, the tech side and make sure that it works well for them uh, and we've almost achieved that actually with Shell we're very proud of that and that wallet backend is really a, a remarkable piece of software and what I'm most proud of is over the last year we've really learned how how to write software quickly. You know, we kind of get accused of delays and being slow and they call us Cardellano. But, you know, the reality is that we're predictably able to hit our milestones now and we're on a two-week release cycle, just like any agile sprint would be. And we're doing an enormous amount of parallel work. And as I mentioned, there was Byron and Shelley, but there's also Gogan, Basho, and Voltaire. Gogan is about smart contracts, Basho is about scalability, and Voltaire is about governance. All three of those are not being done sequentially. They're actually being done in parallel. And we have parallel teams assigned to each of them. And there's a very strong possibility that Gogan is going to hit roughly in the same quarter range as uh, Shelley hits because mm -hmm. that team has been working for three years in parallel and building programming languages and new accounting models and designing new execution units and tooling and so forth. And uh, we have a team working on Basho. A paper's coming out at the end of this month about it, uh, Ouroboros Hydra. And we also have a team working on Voltaire. And we've done three years of research out of Lancaster on governance and software updates and voting and built three <laughs> prototypes. So, uh, so you know, there's, there's a big payoff at the end of the tail for the way that we've chosen to do things. And I didn't really, really worry too much about being the first mover because I realized whoever the first mover was was just going to get hammered with all of the mistakes, just like MySpace did with social networks. You know, they, mm -hmm. they said, hey, uh, we're going to have hack and hack and hack and scalability problems and poor development experience. And everybody's just going to be looking for the next thing to get off of the platform. So I figured it'd be good to let somebody else take all the arrows. And then uh, after they, they lose some momentum for us to appear with, you know, a much better, more holistic, commercially critical solution uh, that gets serious actors very excited about the space. I want to talk more about that, right? How do you ultimately attract developers and build an ecosystem around this protocol? Because Ethereum has a clear lead. Some of the other interoperable blockchains like Cosmos and Polkadot, even though it's pre-launch, certainly have... Um, as much or more buzz than, than some of the other live smart contract platforms. Tezos, same thing. It, it, it seems like it's Ethereum and everybody else. So that's going to be a, a pretty big challenge. We're going to get to that. I want to spend a, a decent amount of time on that. Sure. Um, but before we do, I, I've had very few conversations like this with folks that have built top crypto asset protocols and, and tokens. Um, where they've been able to very clearly communicate exactly what the listing process was like um, to engage with all of these different stakeholders and, and exchanges. Um, and, and I find often that's driven by two things. One, fear uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, you know, how much should we be disclosing about, you know, our role in this? If, if the goal is ultimately to be decentralized, we don't want to be perceived as if we're centralized because we have any type of, you know, coordinated mechanism to, to actually support these exchanges. Right. And then the other element is fear that I better shut my mouth or we might get delisted. That, that doesn't necessarily apply to a project the size of 
Cardano and, and with the liquidity of, of the ADA token, um, because it's kind of like one of the must trades, uh, just by virtue of its size. Right. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it'd be fascinating to learn a little bit more without naming names for the different exchanges, you know, what, what the process has looked like in its most professionalized state, both from a technical and kind of compliance and, and information and communications onboarding. And then once you get to the long tail of exchanges, uh, exactly what shortcuts you might expect other projects uh, able to take advantage of as they, as they ultimately get onboarded. So I don't know what color you can share, but I, I think it's a, a fascinating line to it's, go into at least it's, while, it's while honestly, tracking with the names. It's honestly a very frustrating mess uh, because nothing is clear. Nothing is standardized. Uh, every geography has different priorities. Um, at least some of the most egregious behavior, especially the things that we witnessed in 2017 and 2018 has kind of receded a bit where certain exchanges would say, Hey, uh, we'll even, we'll, we won't even talk to you unless you give us $5 million. You know, my response to that was go fuck yourself. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, at least that egregious behavior has been, uh, has been, you know, mostly resolved and there has been an effort to professionalize and there has been an effort to try to create some notion of regulatory clarity. Um, but just when you start getting comfortable with things, you know, everything changes again. So this proof of stake revolution, especially staking as a service, it's not just us, it's Tezos and EOS and all these other guys and exchanges are getting heavily involved in now potentially the operation of these networks. So they've gone from dispassionate, neutral vendors that are just providing a book, a marketplace, to now, hey, we make profit from and have holdings in these, uh, in these ecosystems and potentially have to actively trade against our customers. So it's a, um, it's a strange world, and it's one that nobody really has good answers for. From our side, though, you know, what we think about is how do we basically give you the highest performance, safest, best listing experience? Because that's all I can do as a technology company. You know, I can't solve regulatory problems. I, I can't do this business stuff. You know, there's other more qualified people than me. But what I can do is just make it the easiest thing in the world to list data. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, because we're a multi-asset ledger, then all the assets that we have on that ledger uh, will be very easy to list as well. So the, our, our version of ERC-20 will be easy to, to bring into the fray. And uh, that's what we're right now focused on this year is the best Explorer experience and the best wallet backend experience and making very easy to list. And then, you know, the rest of these things, they tend to resolve themselves over time. You know, there's real utility with what we're constructing. And actually, we have, I think, one of the best adoption plans of any cryptocurrency. And so when you look that there's real utility in use cases and real adoption, then you, you don't really worry too much about, well, is it a security or is it not a security or whatever, because it's self-evident that it's not. Second, we're mm -hmm. going to be the most decentralized cryptocurrency by the end of the year, at least 100 times more so than Bitcoin and uh, 50 times more so by EOS. The evidence for that is clear with the incentivized test that. A thousand stake pools registered, uh, you know, and a lot of them operating at uh, good capacity. So there's overwhelming demand to decentralize the system. And so if you have a situation where you don't make centralized decisions, you have decentralized funding for the protocol development, there's a governance process that's democratic, and then the people controlling the ledger are, are all across the world, different jurisdictions, then that's truly real decentralized infrastructure. And meanwhile, the good research means that the system will get faster, or at least stay at the same performance with that decentralization trade-off. And we're able to converge the decisions with that decentralization trade-off, which is what we've been promising 
as an ecosystem for over 10 years, uh, but no one's really delivered on because the research is just so damn hard and the code is so damn hard to write. So I, I think that's really the key is just don't worry too much about these things because everything is ephemeral. Just focus on actually having a good relationship with your customers, building a really good product and looking at the evolution of that product and making sure that the evolution is moving in the right direction. As long as decision making continues to be more and more decentralized, as long as your system continues to get more and more decentralized, uh, then you're on the right road. And I don't think anybody's going to have a major problem. And of course, act with integrity. Uh, don't, don't go and do profit seeking things against retail investors. You know, don't go and screw people. Uh, it, it, I follow the ha Paul Halmoth method of, uh, of uh, development. You know, uh, he was a famous Hungarian mathematician and he was a beautiful writer. And he, his key to writing was tell them what you're going to do, do it and tell them what you did. And so similarly, you follow that with software development. You know, tell that we said we're going to do a deep R&D project structured like a DARPA project, high risk, high return, first principles. We have no commitments to anything. We're just going to write tons of papers and learn how to build a best in class cryptocurrency. So we went and did that. And then we said, we're going to go implement that cryptocurrency. And here are the five stages. One is about liquidity and just getting it into the ecosystem. Two is about decentralization. Three is about smart contracts. Four is about scalability. And finally, you have governance. And these are the things that we have to pull together to have a third generation cryptocurrency, to be able to mm -hmm. actually have a billion users and be useful to those users. And then we told them who the target audience is going to be. We said, look, the people who care the most about this and need this infrastructure the most are not you and me. We're in the developed world. We have bank accounts. We have access to financial services. When we go to borrow money, we borrow it at a reasonable rate. Go to buy a home, you can buy a home. The people who care about this are people who live in places that are 35% interest rates, if they can get it, remittances that cost 15%. So we went and rolled it out in Africa. And we actually got great commercial relationships and government relationships from Ethiopia on down. And uh, one deal can bring 5 million users into our system. And those users grow with the system. So we've always had that, uh, that long arc. And as, as long as I think you have that clarity and that simplicity and that honesty and transparency, uh, then you know, it's, it's not really that much of an issue. It's an issue if your end goal is, I want to sell a lot of tokens and walk away with the money. And I sold those tokens to retail investors. And uh, those retail investors are mom and pops. And you sold them on a dream that they're going to get 100x tomorrow. And then they lose all the retirement. You walk away with $2 billion. If you do that, there is no legal scheme or regulatory scheme or uh, structure you can construct that will protect you. Because at some point, the law will just change or the regulator will just manipulate things in a way, go after you and make your life miserable for the next 10 years. And if they don't, you'll get shot by one of your retail investors who feels defrauded. I yep. mean, you'll always be looking over your shoulder. So just don't be an asshole. Don't be a criminal. You know, build something that has real value, have a real philosophy and stick to it like we have for five years, five years now on the same project, the same damn book, doing the same things uh, and uh, deliver what you promised the market. Even if it's a little late, deliver the damn thing. Uh, and then everything else is, it, it just works its way out. That's what Bitcoin did. That's what Vitalik did with Ethereum. And that's what we're doing with Cardano. That's why I think, uh, I think we're going to win. Uh, when when I talk to you in person, uh, both at live events, you know, we talk about this being overdue, and, and now again uh, today, whenever I've had conversations one on one with you, uh, the, 
you always uh, come across as very convincing. I'm, I'm sure part of that is that eloquence is from, you know, just being a professor, right? You, you kind of learn how to uh, communicate more, more cogently and, and convincingly, I'd argue, if you're going to be a, a, a professional professor, right? Um, what, what, if any, challenges have you had communicating amidst the noise and, and, and amidst the drama of crypto Twitter, because, you know, I don't want to even call them controversies because some of the, some of the Twitter wars and memes uh, that, that have floated around um, take on a life of their own and, and, right. and they're more soap opera than, than actual controversy. But um, it does, it does impact the branding of different founders of different projects. Um, what do you think you've done right? What do you think um, you would have done a little differently given that you've been focused on this project for five years and I'm sure you have publicly argued that people misunderstand Cardano or misunderstand you right. and, and your team's motives. Um, what do you attribute that to? Um, and, and how, as you hit these next milestones, do you reset the narrative? Is it just through performance and shipping or, or, or is there an element of the story that hasn't yet been told that needs to be better told? You know, I, I, uh, I've met a lot of really interesting people in life. And uh, I remember meeting David Bowie before he died. And he had this great quote, which was, um, you can either read the book or you can write the book. And so the key about narratives is that, you know, people have the memory of a goldfish and crypto Twitter says this or that, or, you know, the social media is in one direction or the other direction. And then the entire narrative can change a turn of a page. A great example would be Steve Jobs in the early 90s. If you asked anybody in the, the tech media who Steve Jobs, they'd say he's a has-been. He was a brilliant guy in the 80s, fired from his own company, and he's struggling with next computer. He never ships anything. He talks big, doesn't deliver. You ask them in 2007 who's Steve Jobs, greatest entrepreneur innovator in the human history, the next Edison. Uh, basically, he, he revolutionized uh, the, everything, and uh, the world will remember him. Why? Because it wasn't because he said anything, it's because he did stuff. The key to writing the narrative, winning the narrative, is just deliver, build things. Uh, had Ethereum run out of money, and they were very close to it, half a million dollars away, uh, there had probably been regulatory problems, and the story would have been, you know, a bunch of infighting founders raised 18 million, squandered it, and look at all their bad personal conduct. But because they shipped, Vitalik now has the Wikipedia page, he won the Teal uh, Fellowship, and he's considered to be one of the greatest entrepreneurs in our space and probably will be one of the greatest entrepreneurs of the 21st century if he continues his velocity. So the key to the narrative is success. And that's exactly what we're doing at our company. You know, we chose on purpose the hardest of paths. It would have been extremely easy for us to fork Ethereum like Tron did, build up a great marketing team and deliver, you know, a piecemeal innovation and try to compete at that level. And I think uh, people would have been perfectly happy in the short term with that because the returns would have been great. But instead, what we did is we said, we want this technology to be in the hands of a billion people. So we have to think different. We have to look at the problem differently. We have to do foundational research. We have to do the hard stuff. We have to ask, what happens when you go from 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000 to a million to 10 million to 100 million users and so forth to your network stack? How do you need to write transactions so you can shard them? How do you handle smart contracts? Blah, blah, blah. There's a hundred damn things to think about. And all of these things pull at each other and there are no good answers and no one wrote this book. It's new. 
So what we've done is we've done all this amazing foundational research and our challenge as a company is that that is utterly inaccessible. No one in the crypto space at this point in this stage, if they're intellectually honest and they're just not a complete asshole or shill, would say that we haven't done great academic work. They'll say, yeah, we have. The problem is that you cannot take a 60-page paper and hand it to a regular everyday people, which has tons of math in it, and say, here you go. Here's proof of stake. It's solved. They can't read it. They can't understand it. Mm -hmm. So where we've really failed is we haven't been very good at product marketing. There's no greater example of that than going to the proof of stake Wikipedia page. We're not mentioned. We solved proof of stake. We solved every major problem of it. And it's not just us saying that. Crypto, we went to peer-reviewed independent conferences with double-blind submissions, and they accepted the papers saying there's merit legitimacy to the arguments and statements we've made. We've even begun formally verifying the proofs using Isabel, for heaven's sake. The bar was so high there, and we met that bar. The problem is that we never communicated that in a way that was understandable. So I think that's, that's the first major issue. The second issue is there's a lot of bitterness. Because ADA was at $1.20, Ethereum was at $1,000, and then everybody lost 90% of their value. And if a person bought at the top, there is no solace for them because they've lost 90% of their money. So you can tell them you've cured cancer. You can tell them you've saved Rwanda. You've, saved, uh, you've cured coronavirus. And they're like, great. What the fuck does that have to do with the tea in China? You know, they just don't care. And so they, they have to have a reason why they've lost that money. And they have to say, well, it was because you made a mistake or this project didn't execute fast enough or uh, this other project outcompeted you, yada, 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 whatever it might be. So until the markets recover, there's going to be a clique of people that are always fundamentally unhappy. The other thing is that we have financial incentives to be tribal in this space. And people just don't understand that. Uh, you, you know, a lot of the people that look at Cardano and they criticize Cardano, they, they're criticizing because they're legitimately afraid that if we succeed, they fail. So they can't allow us to succeed and vice versa. Our, you know, if you have a financial interest in something, you don't want the competitor of that thing to be dominating in the marketplace because it might hurt your bottom line. Or you might just believe that your thing is perfect and has never made a mistake and your people are brilliant and amazing and your cult is a, it has the true version of God and everybody else's is just like Satan incarnate. So there's tons of tribalism in this space and people provoke controversy and tribalism and there's money to be made in fractioning people and tribalism. And so there's tons of shock jocks and tons of people that go around. They, all they do is create controversy, like crypto, uh, Chico Crypto or all these other guys. All they do all day long is just, who can we throw some molten tar on and see if it sticks? And then, of course, I'll get a lot of views and I'm monetized. And basically, this gets me hype. Tone Vase mm -hmm. is another one. He's not as, uh, he's not, doesn't have as much vitriol. He's a bit more of a parody at this point. Actually, Tone and I are pretty good friends, but he calls everybody a scam. You know, and so this is a whole industry that has formed uh, in our place. And then you get provoked into things. And sometimes uh, certain people just don't have the social graces or skills. Like the, the worst mistake I ever made on crypto Twitter was the MetaMask incident. Uh, the, the infamous, do you know who I am tweet? You know, I alluded to in the intro. And, you know, and, and if you look at it from my perspective, I was looking at it like a CEO. I had just launched the product, Icarus, which turned into Uroi. Now, 20% of the Cardano network is on it. It's a Chrome extension. And MetaMask had been delisted and literally got delisted the day that we launched Icarus. And I'm thinking, oh, God, 
is this now a Google crackdown? Did I just spend six months building something that I have no distribution with? And, you know, the MetaMask team is very small, and I didn't have anybody's email, and I'm desperately trying to get in contact with them to get the inside story. So mm -hmm. I pinged these guys over Twitter because I've pinged everybody over Twitter. I talked to so many people. I've even talked to Jack Dorsey over Twitter through PMs, and I couldn't send them a PM directly. Uh, so I just tweet them and say, hey, I need to talk to you guys. Can you send me a private message? And then they say, hey, you know, just send something to the support email. And, and I'm thinking, it's a small open source project. They have a huge user base. If I send it to the support email, I'm going to get a reply in three weeks or four weeks. This, just, yep. it, it, this is just how this world works. And guys, I'm the CEO of a big company in this space. Come on, give, uh, you would give Vitalik, Joe Lubin, Dan Lever, you give anybody, uh, you know, a PM. That's just, just, let's be reasonable about this. Come on. And I say that, you know, because I was in Vietnam at the time I sent that tweet. I actually had the flu. I wasn't feeling very good. I'd been traveling a bit. And I was just pissed off by that. I was like, this, is, this has nothing to do with you just routing support email. You know exactly who I am. And because you're on the Ethereum side and I'm on the Cardano side, you're just dissing me over Twitter. And yeah. you're hurting yourself. Come on. You know, and if I was your boss, I would be like, this is ridiculous. If I was the CEO of Ford and contacting somebody from GM, do you think they'd tell the CEO, oh, no, use the support email? Come on. This is ridiculous. Yeah. This has nothing to do with ego. It has to do with professionalism or rapport. So I send that tweet, and then immediately it blows up to this. Charles Hoskinson is the guy who yells at people in, at the, at the check-in <laughs> desk at the hotel. And when the waiter doesn't get show up fast enough, it is the dick with the waiter. And it's just my whole character became an entire tweet. Because, yeah. And everybody dogpiled. They made t-shirts about it. They still talk about it today mm -hmm. at conferences as if this is the man. Meanwhile, they never thought about the commercial reality. They never thought about the context of this. They never thought about that the fact that 140 characters don't define a person. And they never even looked at it from another perspective other than the words themselves. And so this is the problem with social media is people want simple answers to complicated situations. People want to compress an entire human being to a certain statement. And then, if it, and then they use confirmation bias to double down on that. And then it gets mm -hmm. so bizarre, it becomes a parody of itself. You know, where have I ever been the arrogant asshole in this entire space? We have examples of that. Look at Craig Wright. He shows up in Rwanda. I was there. And he said, I have more money than your country. That's how he opened his speech. I, I spent 10 minutes in the backstage with him, the most thoroughly despicable 10 minutes where he wouldn't even give us the time of day. He was looking at his cell phone the entire time while we were talking to each other, and he would only look up to yell at us. And then, and then he just bragged about how big his patent portfolio is and how we're all mm -hmm. criminals and he's the only guy who's the harbinger of truth. That, those are the people in the space that are arrogant assholes. What have we done? Everything we do is open source. We write papers with anybody who wants to write papers with us. All of, all of, we've never written a patent in the entire history of the company. All of our code is open source. We've brought up tons of entrepreneurs in this space. For example, Alex Chirpinoy with Scorex, which led to the Waves Project and a litany of other things. We spent a million and a half dollars building up Ethereum Classic, and we released everything for free to that ecosystem. We make no money on that. You can just look at the track record of the last five years of the contributions we've made, even in the Ethereum space where they brutally criticize us. We went ahead and financed the KEVM semantics, the first set of formal semantics for Ethereum. At one time, we had a fully working Ethereum node, full client. Mantis worked with both Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. And we never asked for anything in return. We never told them how to do their job. I, sh I certainly criticize people like Tezos. Yeah, because... 
there was just really bad stuff. They had to spend $60 million to clean up their bad stuff. You know, and absolutely, they put a guy they couldn't control into the foundation. He didn't share the vision of the founders. And they built themselves in an 8.5% guaranteed return on retail investor money. So, of course, I'm going to criticize them. EOS, of course, I'm going to criticize them for raising $4 billion and saying they have no fiduciary obligation to their investors and, and having a very haphazard launch and a litany of problems that are still not resolved to today. Yes, that's commercial criticism. And that's conduct criticism. It's fact-based. It's based on things that people did. And it's based on things that hurt not rich people, but poor people. So I'm going to have a difference of opinion. And I'm going to have, uh, when I see these things, uh, point them out. On the other hand, you know, if Tezos came to us today and said, we'd like to co-author a governance paper with you guys, we'd say, sure, as long as it's released under an open source license, absolutely. If the EOS guys came to us today and said, you know, we'd love IOHK to build a DSL, we'd say, sure, as long as it's released under an open source license and it has real benefit, we'll go do that for you guys. And we're happy to work with anybody, whether on Ethereum or anything else. There's never ego or any of these things in our commercial relationships. But if you go to crypto Twitter, you'd assume that we're just these super narcissistic, hyper-partisan, everybody else must die, and it's a big cult of personality around Charles Hoskinson. Meanwhile, if you watch my presentations, what do I say? Kill the founders. Trust the process over the people. Don't trust mm -hmm. us. Trust the science. Use the peer review process. Uh, you know, create common source of truth with formal methods that's implementation agnostic so you can have a diversity of implementations by independent teams. Decentralized decision-making. Decentralized funding with treasury mechanisms. These are not the goals and aspirations of a cult of personality or somebody who thinks they have the right to control everything or control you. These are the aspirations of a person that wants to let the ecosystem go and be Darwinian in control of the users, not one company. Uh, but crypto Twitter just doesn't seem to get that. They just, they just want to compress people to you know, a little thing. But here's the thing. I have a great life. So I just, uh, to quote Herman Cain's mother, I does not care. You know, what's, I have a farm, I have donkeys, I have chickens, I have geese, my, I have great parents, you know, uh, my brother's a doctor, I talk to him all the time, life is good for me. So mm -hmm. it's not real life, that's just shallowness and that's just the, the, the id of the internet and passing thoughts and if you let it bother you, it's never going to be fair, you're never going to be win, you're going to be like on the rapids, uh, basically at the mercy of the river. Or what you can do is just ignore the whole damn thing, build stuff, and control the narrative, as I mentioned. And then mm -hmm. over time, people will actually converge to the right opinions. And they'll, they'll see what you've done and what you've contributed. And that's what's happening, as reflected in the adoption of ADA and as reflected by the interests we've got in the ecosystem. There, there is an interesting middle ground, right? So everything that you just said you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let your criticisms, you know, stand, stand on their own two feet. Uh, and, and I certainly have my own for various projects or, or actors within the ecosystem and, and I'm pretty public about them. Um, but the middle ground uh, may be your story checks out. I can totally envision being in that scenario with MetaMask, sending that tweets and then watching everything kind of blow up. I think I've had tweets like that. I think most people have. Um, the, the, there, there's on one aspect, you can kind of ignore it. The other aspect, you can kind of laugh it off, embrace it, and then say, you know, whatever, I'm going back to work. Um, but what's interesting, because we are in different tribes within crypto, is that uh, those memes start out as harmless uh, schadenfreude, 
right? Right. And then they, I have, I've kind of watched this play out uh, over and over again, not just with you, but with, you know, Vitalik's a scammer because he sold, you know, quantum computers when he was 18 or whatever. Um, uh, you know, basically you go down the list of like top right. hundred, you know, crypto asset creators and, and, and every single one of them, the things that have been said are just, um, you know, would, would make most people cry, right? If they had to just endure that in their day-to-day life. Um, but it, it seems that even the harmless memes that, you know, look, man, I'll, I'll bust your balls all day long for that tweet. But I also believe you're the entirety of what you just said. And I understand the full context of it. Right. What tends to happen is that these things can metastasize to your point, and then they, they get trotted out as, as you know, uh, character references right. um, and, and, and totally taken out of context. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're, we're more or less on the same page there. Where I want to bring this back and where I promised we were going to spend more time is in practice, how do you rally community now, right? Are you, right. are you going to siphon off particular use cases? Do you think that this happens organically as you roll out new features and, and hit new milestones right. with the platform? Um, because, you know, their history, is, particularly in tech, is, is littered with examples of inferior technology winning because there's better marketing, right? right? And there's better network effects. Um, right. And I'm still personally very torn whether there is developer lock-in or if the interoperability of these systems will ultimately make it extremely fluid for the best tech underlying tech to win. Okay. So first, Ryan, you have to understand that there is no market standard right now. People think, oh, how do you compete with the dominance of Bitcoin and Ethereum? It's like less than 1% of all developers who write software, write software for those platforms. So no, no one's won. Okay. If you look at, you know, application development, uh, you know, how many cell phone developers were there in 2005? There just were none. It was a super rare profession. If you, in 2005, say, I write software for cell phones. It'd be like, wow, that's kind of hard, weird stuff. In 2015, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because yeah, it was the dominant standard by that. So no standard has set, it will set. Uh, and it's important to understand that our competition right now is not Ethereum versus EOS versus Tezos versus Cardano. That's mm-hmm. like a bunch of kids at the kids' table squabbling with each other. The big table are the Microsofts, the Apples, the Googles, the Samsungs, because they have gargantuan network effect with their hardware and software that has already been deployed. Microsoft could wake up tomorrow and say, we're going to create Microsoft token, and the wallet for it's going to be built into Microsoft Windows, and we'll have a cloud wallet with our cloud backend on Azure. Then all of a sudden, they have 3 billion users. And this is why Libra was so significant because they were thinking, God, you know, if that thing came out, they have 3 billion users with Facebook. The same for Google with Android, the same for Samsung actually putting a crypto wallet into their phone. So in the next three to five years, all of GAFA, the fangs, these guys are going to get into our space and they're going to leverage the fact that they already have billions of customer relationships uh, to basically roll out either their own solutions or open standards. And so that is the war that we as an ecosystem are going to face. And it's uh, not clear how to win that war because those incumbents have tremendous built-in network effects, advantages and regulatory advantages. And the regulators are more apt to trust them because they're regulated entities than to trust the emerging crypto space. So this is one of the principal reasons why we've chosen our commercial focus on the developing world. Because even if GAFA does that, it's not going to change the day-to-day affairs of the people in Ethiopia or Uganda or South Africa. The reality Mm -hmm. is that these guys are unbanked and they're in a period of flux. 
where their economies are growing at 10 to 15% per year, and the consequences of globalization are forcing them over the next five years to pick an identity standard, a regulatory standard, supply chain standards, and so forth. And so right there, you can get a billion new users that are coming online with no vendor preferences. And so then you go to them and you say, do you want a system where one group of people get to decide everything for you, and those are white people in Silicon Valley, who have never been to your country? Or do you want a system where the power is pushed to the edges, you're in total control of this thing, and even your own government can't take it from you or screw it up? And they'll say, you know, we would prefer the latter if we can get away with it, that would be great. And so how you get in there is you do network plays. Like for example, just look at coffee farming in Ethiopia. There, you have a situation where Starbucks starts saying, guys, we're only going to buy coffee if it's fair trade and it's made in a sustainable way. So the, how the hell do you, as a smallholder coffee farmer in Ethiopia who has no tech and you put your beans on the back of a donkey, ride it to a washing station, prove to Starbucks that you have these things? You need a supply chain. Well, well, if you have a supply chain, what does that mean? You need a digital identity system, a payment system. You need a blockchain you know, all those things. The minute you create that, you bring 15 million farmers into a blockchain. And then you have the infrastructure to put it, a credit system, an insurance system. Uh, you can now all of a sudden tokenize the SMEs in the country and so forth. So these are the kinds of conversations we're having, not with everyday people, but with prime ministers and presidents and NGOs and aid organizations and so forth. Uh, and they're very productive conversations and they have a three to seven year time horizon. And Microsoft doesn't care too much about this. IBM doesn't care too much about this. They may claim it, but they look for the big stuff. The, the TAM is too small in the lifetime value. It's too small for these marketplaces for them to get involved in. But if we get in early, then we'll grow as they grow. And over time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we become the Pan-African standard for everything, mm -hmm. for regulation, uh, the automation of compliance, for uh, self-sovereign identity, and so forth. Now, in terms of what makes Cardano a useful platform, we term this, we, we, we have a term for it, we call it CCCI, uh, commercially critical, Cardano commercially critical infrastructure. Uh, so basically, uh, that means what collection of services does Cardano as a blockchain have to provide developers and infrastructure providers to be useful for DeFi and to be useful to solve real life problems. So you, you go in both directions. You look at what the industry's already built and you can glean from that. You need stable coins and Oracle solutions and a multi-asset standard for both fungible and non-fungible, regulated, non-regulated. You need a metadata standard. You need good developer tools, these types of things, the nuts and bolts. And there's already a lot of great knowledge that's been produced about how to do that stuff well from chain link on down. Then you look at the other side, which is you actually have to do stuff. Like in Georgia, we're right now putting all of the diplomas from the university system of Georgia on a blockchain. Those are real users, real things, 50,000 customers per year. So that teaches us a lot about how to integrate into government infrastructure. And in Ethiopia, we're right now doing a feasibility study, which will turn into a pilot for a currency for Addis Ababa with 4 million users to pay for utilities. So that teaches you real time how cash in, cash out works in real time, how payment systems actually be deployed to real life people. And then you build out partnerships. In Africa, telcos are the banks. This is where M-Pesa, these other things have come from. So we just signed a, 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 a MOU with a, a, a ISP in Tanzania 
that's going to be building out cell phone infrastructure. So we can learn how that entire industry works and we get better integrated and use these guys as a cash in, cash out point, create some decentralization in the telecommunications space. So again, these time horizons are long arc, but they inform the development of your commercially critical infrastructure. And then over time, that becomes a super resilient platform that the users know, A, is not quicksand, it's not going to change dramatically. It's going to evolve and grow like TCPIP does. Uh, B, that is self-sustaining, that there's always funding available to build things on top of that. The treasury model is so powerful. It's like a VC in the sky that gets more and more money over time. And C, has a governance layer that admits decentralization. You know, it's, it, it, you don't want a system where you have three guys who sit down and make a decision of where the system goes. You want a system where as you gain more actors, the people at the edges get more and more power. So we think we, we've solved the tech side and we think we've solved the social dynamic side. And it's just a, one of those things where you have to get enough sustainability in the funding so that you can get to a critical mass and then the system gets completely deployed. And, you know, the other thing, right, is that as, as we gain uh, more momentum, I get more resources to do crazier and crazier things. Like I had a great conversation with some people in the space industry about building a satellite network. Uh, a LEO network with quantum key exchange as a layer zero solution to be the network backbone for Cardano. If we get to a point where the treasury system can give us $250 million, I can build that. And now I don't even need to use the internet to run the world financial operating system. I have my own internet for it. So not this year, but in three to five years, we could be there. You know, in fact, we were there in 2017. So it's very easy for the industry to get us back there. So it's one of those positive reinforcement feedback loops. And the other thing is you look at where does the brain of our ecosystem live? And it, with Ethereum, it's Vitalik. With EOS, it's Dan. With Ripple, it's a small group of engineers like, like Schwartz and so forth. With us, the brain lives in the academy. Because of the peer review process, more than 10 universities are actively writing papers for our ecosystem. And we have four labs. We just opened up one with the University of Wyoming. And what Wyoming was so special for is we funded that lab entirely with ADA. So do you know what that means? In the next three to five years, the students groups and professors can start treating the treasury of Cardano like the NSF and say, we'd like to set up a lab. They never have to have a conversation with me. They just set, submit a ballot to the Cardano blockchain and get half a million, million dollars and set up a, a cryptocurrency research lab. And, and I've never met them before. So we could wake up and have 50 or 100 academic labs all around the world creating peer-reviewed open source research directly for the Cardano ecosystem and a, a beautiful decentralized orchestration. This is the machine that we've constructed and these are the markets that we're in. So I'm not worried at all about GAFA. I'm not worried at all about Western regulation. I'm worried about the poorest, most vulnerable people and upgrading them up to basically have the same capabilities that you and I have. As for the rest of the actors like the Ethereums and the Tezoses and so forth, I wish them well. And I wish them the best of success, and I hope that they get to where they want to go. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, probably a collection of them will get to a certain critical mass, and uh, then it'll just be like Google, the don't be evil phenomena. You always get corrupted. If you stay in those environments and you keep centralized too long, then basically you get co-opted and you're told, if you want to stay out of jail, you want to keep all the money you have, you keep your lifestyle, you got to play ball. In which case the system will be perpetually, uh, perpetually centralized. Governments love Bitcoin. 
because it's so easy to control because the mining capacity is so easy to control. They understand the social dynamics of it. They understand how the development is done, who basically does what, and they understand how to track and trace it. And they understand basically the supply chain for the miners. So at any given time, if they really wanted to crap down on it, they could drop the hash rate 90% by just a couple of strategic arrests and a couple of strategic executions. That's the, that's the harsh reality of where Bitcoin lives. Cardano, on the other hand, or any of these proof-of-stake systems, they're ephemeral. Control can move from one country to another country like a transaction. So they're super, super hard to shut down, and they get more decentralized over time. Uh, and, it's, and if you have decentralized governance and decentralized funding, there is no one entity or developer that you can throw in jail. And if you nestle your brain in the academy, what the hell are you going to do? Go raid MIT and Harvard? Go arrest the computer science department of the uh, University of Edinburgh? You can't do it. It's impossible. That is the key to winning. Focus on the poorest, build them up, give them the tool, focus on the trends, go where globalization is forcing people to upgrade, get a billion users, and build a system that gets more decentralized over time, and build a system that does not need the founders to be successful. That's the great lesson of Bitcoin. And that's what we're focused on as a project. As for the rest of the stuff, you know, just be good at absorbing in, uh, you know, technology. If Ethereum becomes the standard, I have a strategy for pulling the EVM into Ledger. Then it's just like having the Java virtual machine running on your system. Okay, great. Does that mean Oracle wins? No, no one has to talk to Oracle if they do a Java project. So does that benefit Ethereum? Not at all. You know, if another buddy is a market standard, I have a strategy for absorbing them. So it doesn't bother me at all. And, you know, we live in a system where no one actor can win because we're talking about people's money. We're talking about people's identity. We're talking about people's privacy. Do we have one language? Do we have one religion? Do we have one of anything? No. Anytime you deal with controversy, you're going to have a plurality of opinions. So just focus on the people you want to help and you know, build good things for them and have the right growth factors. And over 10, 20 years, you wake up, you have 100 million users, a billion users. And then you know, what the hell do you care about everything else? You, you've won. You've done what you wanted to do. That is probably the best monologue that we could end with. I don't want to add anything uh, to, to that, uh, that spiel that you just gave because I think it, it helps people understand your philosophy, where the project is going, the strategy. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd rather just let that stand on its own two feet so people can, can make their own judgments on, uh, on Cardano and, and hopefully interfacing with, that, with your ecosystem. Um, Charles, you're at I-O-H-K underscore Charles on Twitter. Um, and, and it's good that people know who you are now. Um, if they didn't already, <laughs> I had to throw that one in there as a bookend. Um, where, where can people get involved otherwise if they want to participate in the community or get involved with either I-O-H-K yeah. or, or Cardano Foundation, et cetera? Yeah, I just go to cardano.org. It's, uh, it's the Cardano Foundation's webpage. It's a great routing page, and there's a ton of information there. Also, the IOHK website, iohk.io. Uh, these are two really nice information-rich sources. We're doing a big redesign of our web assets and documentation. In a few months, we'll kind of consolidate everything into a single source of truth. That's another criticism of the project is we have a little bit of fragmentation on the uh, information about Cardano. So it's important to pull it all together. But uh, cardano.org is probably your best bet, and that that'll be updated very rapidly and radically. And uh, it already has tons of great information. The test net for Shelly is out. And that's, uh, uh, that's another website to go to. And you can reach it through the IWHK website. 
uh, and uh, DaedalusWallet.io uh, is our uh, is our wallet uh, address if you want to download the Daedalus Wallet. And it has a lot of information on it as well. So just uh, just go there, and hopefully we can get back on Wikipedia. We had a Wikipedia page. The editors, in their infinite wisdom, decided to take it down. And it just gives you another example of what happens when you have centralized curation of power. Uh, somebody thinks it's okay to commercially censor. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so hopefully we can resolve that uh, pretty soon too. And uh, otherwise, just follow me on Twitter. And uh, I, I tweet all the time interesting things about the project and other Excellent. stuff. Um, well, uh, I know our team is also working with the foundation on uh, making sure that there is a reliable single source of truth for, for Cardano-related information. If you go to masara.io, search for Cardano. Uh, we do have a full profile and, and working with your, your team and your colleagues uh, on, uh, on our registry initiative. So, uh, Charles, uh, thanks so much. This was overdue, but it was great. And I think it comes at a timely point in the project's life cycle. Um, for all of our listeners and watchers, Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one. I think this is one of the best episodes we've done this season. So thanks again. Until next time. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.